Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Twenty twenty one, the year that football didn't quite come home, was also the year the richest part of it nearly departed forever. This so-called dirty dozen have schemed to execute a breakaway which will reshape football forever. A plot so audacious, even the Prime Minister is intervening. It was leaked that a new European Super League was being set up, six top English clubs were signed up, the football revolution was on. The balloon went up, everybody went bonkers, no one was over the moon, and within days the whole thing was a smoking ruin never to be rebuilt. Choose your own metaphors. But is that the whole story? To capture younger fans around the world regularly, you need to genetically engineer more Titanic clashes. You need more Real Madrid, Liverpool and fewer Everton, Stoke. So who were the powerful individuals and wealthy families behind this brainwave? How was it going to work? How did they ever think they could sell it to the fans? And might it come back? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times of the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the European Super League busted flush or gonna happen someday. I sometimes do big projects around stories that cross over from other areas and touch on business where I can maybe add something different than the usual sector reporters would. So in this instance, the European Super League story, 12 of the biggest European clubs are trying to set up a new breakaway competition that would have replaced the Champions League. That's business editor for the Sunday Times, Oliver Shah, who we disturbed on holiday in sunny Cornwall. I should confess early on I'm football illiterate. <laughs> I have, I have no, no hinterland or particular um, allegiances in football at all, so I came at it as an outsider looking in. That sets up a very interesting dynamic in this interview, which is that I know an awful lot about football and have even more opinions than I have knowledge about it, but you have the knowledge about this, so there's going to be <laughs> an interesting tension here. Now, when you started to look at how the European Super League proposal came about, who did you discover were the main people behind it? The main driver behind the whole thing for the past few years has been Florentino Perez. He is the Spanish construction billionaire or is president of Real Madrid and has been since 2000. Perez is quite a complicated character. He's a vigorous, passionate Real Madrid supporter. He has been since the age of five. He runs... ACS, this big construction conglomerate that builds roads and hospitals and infrastructure. 
Um, that's his day job. But the thing he lives for is Real Madrid. He sees himself as a descendant of Santiago Bernabeu, the great president in Real Madrid's history who helped create uh, the European Cup, the forerunner to the Champions League. Perez sees this as a turning point in European football. He thinks European football is mortally threatened by a few different factors. And he sees it as his job and Real Madrid's job to save European football. Florentino Perez put his cards on the table and explained that he was there to save football. That was where the Super League plan started. He thinks football will die unless he does something. So he felt impelled by his vision of what football needed and his beloved club, Real Madrid, needed to do to secure the future. Now, who were the other people involved? There were a couple of people who were close to him as advisors. There's a guy called Anas Lagrari who's very interesting. He's a 37-year-old Moroccan-French investment banker with a small boutique bank called Key Capital. Lagrari has a family connection to Perez. Lagrari's father is also an engineer. He was born the same year as Perez. And Lagrari Sr. and Perez have been friends for decades and decades through the construction industry. Uh, Lagrari Jr., Anas Lagrari, is like an adopted nephew to Perez. He's very close to him. They speak on a daily basis. Perez is a bit gruff. Lagrari understands financing in a more sophisticated way. He's a more modern executive. And there was another guy called uh, John Hahn, who was with an American private equity firm called Providence Equity, brought in by Lagrari. So there was that trio, Perez, Lagrari, and Hahn, at the core of everything. And then there's the Italian link, the all-important Juventus connection. There was the Juventus president, Andrea Agnelli, who was an early ally in the project. Agnelli is a descendant of the family that created Fiat and has controlled Juventus for the best part of a decade. Now, we should just say a couple of things to fill in a little bit of bits of history. Um, the guy that Perez succeeds, Bernabeu, the Real Madrid Stadium is famously named after him. And Agnelli, as you say, is the scion of the car-making family of Fiat, which ran large parts of Turin, which is where Juventus is based. So what you have here is real ingrained dynasties, isn't it? Two towering figures in their respective clubs and respective towns, you're right. The Agnelli's and then as the Kennedys of Italy, very, very powerful clan, and have supported the Turin economy for decades. They see Juventus as part business, part love. And Perez, although he's only been president since 2000, it's part business, part love for him as well. And there's motion as well as business logic here. So the idea that Perez and Agnelli, whatever else their motivations, don't care about football, that doesn't really wash, does it? No, they absolutely do care about it. They they believe they're fundamentally misunderstood, that the public and the politicians who were so up in arms about the Super League plan fundamentally didn't understand what it was about. You know, people accuse them of trying to destroy football, of trying to segregate it and fence off the elite slopes for their own private gain. They would see it as the opposite. They think without this kind of plan, football's being strangled by UEFA and to a degree by FIFA. Well, let's go into their logic there, because at one level from the outside, you look at it and you think Real Madrid, incredibly rich club, Juventus, incredibly rich club, and they've got richer and television money has come in. So what's actually their problem? What is the structure of their thinking that somehow or other they've got a problem that they need to solve by some radical change? To the lay observer, Real Madrid and Barcelona and Juventus are rich clubs. They turn over uh, millions a year. In a good year, they make a few million profit. But it's a bit like um, a millionaire in Primrose Hill looking across to Monaco at the billionaires. 
Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid. They look at uh, Chelsea, owned by Roman Abramovich, and they look at Man City, owned by Abu Dhabi, and Paris Saint-Germain, owned by Qatar. They see how the scale of the financial backing behind these clubs has gone from millionaire level to billionaire level to now trillionaire sovereign-backed clubs. And they, they think they're threatened in the long run by these clubs. They see themselves being squeezed by cooling broadcast rights as teenagers unplug and do other things and stop watching 90-minute games because their attention spans are being whittled away by smartphones. And meanwhile, they see Chelsea, PSG, Man City, and whichever is the next club to be bought by a, a sovereign-linked entity, pumping more and more money into clubs, surrounding areas, finding ways to get money into player salaries. And they see themselves being left behind. You add on top of that COVID, which changed the game because obviously games couldn't be played in front of crowds. Real Madrid barely turned a profit in 2019-20. It made about 1.9 million. Juventus lost more than 80 million euros. Barcelona lost 128 million euros. This proposition that there should be a European Super League, which will somehow or other help them, it's not a new proposition, is it? No, it's been bubbling away for years. In 1998, Silvio Berlusconi, who then owned AC Milan, uh, mooted it. That went away because the Champions League was expanded and the clubs were given a greater share of the money. And there was then this rebel group of clubs called G14, which swelled to 18 by the time it was uh, disbanded. And they kicked around the idea of a Super League. It was tended to be assumed by UEFA and FIFA that the big clubs floated the idea of a Super League whenever they wanted to uh, leverage more money out of UEFA for Champions League. It was seen as a threat that would never come to pass, but it has been around and around for years. Now, there's one thing I want to be clear about. Some of the clubs who were involved in this new proposition had been involved in the old previous propositions, but I don't remember the same degree of fuss about it. I think those old propositions never came so close to reality. In, in the past, maybe there had been a degree of clubs crying wolf. Around 2017, uh, Florentino Perez decided he was really going to go for it. He had come to the firm view that European football was going to die, that attention spans were changing, that younger generations weren't interested in watching the lower rungs of Champions League or the mid-table clashes in domestic leagues. Oliver's referenced those mighty governing acronyms, FIFA and UEFA, a few times now, but what exactly is their role in determining the shape of football leagues and club competitions, domestic or international? And how do the clubs regard these governing bodies? You get a lot of resentment against UEFA, which run the Champions League and organise the broadcast rights and the commercial side of it, but also... UEFA and FIFA act as regulators of the global sport. The European clubs in particular get very upset at the idea that they're competing against these governing bodies while being regulated by them and while being intermediated by them in negotiations with broadcast partners. They see themselves as being pushed around, ordered around by these faceless apparatchiks in Switzerland. Meanwhile, you've got the, the big six in the Premier League who feel aggrieved at the amount of money they put into the Premier League versus the spoils they get out. So what they're actually saying is, when it comes right down to it, no matter what your sentiment about these smaller clubs, the economy of football rests on us. They see themselves as shoveling a load of fuel into the tank and then other clubs getting a free ride off it, especially Liverpool, owned by John Henry, and Man United owned by the Glazer family. They're very driven by the financials. They're very attracted by the idea of making a lot more money out of their investments. And for them, it's a much harder-headed, more business-based decision. 
Okay, so let's now go down to what the actual proposals were for the tournament. Perez's first vision was a new pan-European league that would have replaced La Liga in Spain, Syria and Italy, uh, Premier League in the UK. And the best clubs or the biggest clubs from those leagues would have left, created a new league. And they they quickly ditched that idea because they realised that would be too socially toxic. And they moved on to the idea of a pan-European knockout competition that would replace the Champions League. There would have been 15 permanent members and there would have been five guest members invited on a rolling basis every year. Obviously, the thing that really made um, fans go mad was the idea of permanent places for the 15 founding members. The lack of jeopardy, the risk of being relegated, would have fundamentally cut across the idea that governs European football, the idea that you can ascend from the bottom of the pyramid, the lower leagues, right to the top, and uh, vice versa. What exactly was it about the permanence and lack of jeopardy that really spoke to the super-rich clubs? The European clubs worried about their finances would have had guaranteed income streams for years and years they could borrow against. John Henry at Liverpool and the Glazers and Man U would have loved the structure because it's very similar to US sports leagues, which are closed, where teams have long visibility over their earnings, can finance themselves against that. Lots of the clubs involved cited cost control as a big appeal. There were very, very strict limits on spending in the Super League plans. You could only spend a certain proportion of your revenues on players. Lots of the clubs involved perceive that UEFA has been toothless in uh, enforcing financial fair play, whereby the best players change hands for ever-increasing sums at a point in time when broadcast rights are deflating and the, the mere billionaires who Juventus and Real Madrid have to uh, compete on an unfair playing field. They wanted a, a competition which would be partially closed so that they would know the next year it would be essentially the same enormous clubs generating the same interest and the same revenues year after year which they could plan on. You raised the question about how some of this was in response to the super billionaire clubs, the people owned by countries and oligarchs. Why did Manchester City and Chelsea commit to this when actually they didn't need it? Those two super clubs joined up at the absolute last minute. And you can only imagine that in the end, FOMO played a factor. They worried this may well become the the way of the future. And by not being founding members, they would lose some influence and some power. Up until now, we've heard mainly about the two or three clubs leading the organisation of the Super League. But who else got involved? Who would have been part of this thing? There were six Spanish and Italian teams, AC Milan, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, Inter Milan, Juventus and Real Madrid. There were six English sides, Arsenal, Liverpool, Man United, Spurs, Chelsea and uh, Man City. So there were 12 and it was a, it was a strange alliance. The, the six Spanish and Italian teams that had always looked enviously at the riches of the Premier League and worried about being left behind. There were then four English sides, Arsenal, Liverpool, Man United and Spurs, um, which were worried about Man City and Chelsea and their financial might. And then there were Chelsea and Man City who seemed to, in the end, come along for the ride from fear of missing out. So they were just discussing a more, in some ways, more highly regulated enterprise with, as you say, a wage cap to stop wage inflation. What kind of figures were they talking about with regard to what these clubs could earn from the new competition? They were talking about four billion a year of broadcast rights which they would have divvied between themselves. So about a third would have been distributed between the 15 founding clubs 
a further third would have been shared between all 20 teams, including the five guests. A fifth would have been shared out based on performance and the final 15% would be paid depending on broadcast audience size. There would have been no UEFA taking a cut. So they would have had that entire 4 billion to themselves. And JP Morgan, the investment bank, financing the whole thing with what it called the infrastructure grants, would have paid every founding club up to 300 million euros each as a golden hello in advance based on those broadcast rights. Okay, let's take a break while we digest the sheer amount of money involved. When we come back, Oliver will take us through how the sky fell in on the football revolutionaries. But first, a message from a colleague. Hello, I'm Laura Pullman, New York correspondent for the Sunday Times. It's thanks to you I get to cover all things this unbridled city has to conjure up. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before the ads, business editor for the Sunday Times, Oliver Shah, had been exploring the riches available to entice the would-be superleaguers. So were J.P. Morgan the first set of people that Perez and the others approached? In 2018, when Perez and his two associates were first casting around for financial backing, they went to CVC. CVC is very well known in sports investing. It was a pioneer, really. It started off with MotoGP, the motorbike Grand Prix in 1998 bought Formula One in 2005. It's currently trying to buy into Syria. But the way CVC works is it doesn't believe in creating new competitions. It doesn't believe in disrupting sporting pyramids. It thinks that's controversial. And if you look at the way it's tiptoed steadily into rugby with Premiership Rugby, Pro 14 and Six Nations, it's bought stakes in existing tournaments with the aim of monetizing them better 
trying to improve them over time rather than creating new breakaway tournaments. So Perez and his friends spoke to CVC Madrid, CVC Madrid spoke to CVC London, but they decided quite early on not to be involved because they thought that any kind of breakaway would be too disruptive and too painful for fans. That's very interesting. Is CVC basically a British company? Yeah, CVC is a British or European private equity firm. And JP Morgan, of course, is an American banker. They see things differently, don't they? I mean, JP Morgan are huge in global sports finance and the financial structure they were going to use with the Super League, they've used a lot in American leagues to help American clubs fund themselves. This idea of a breakaway league with a permanent structure is something the Americans instinctively understand because it's the way all the big American leagues like the NFL are structured. It's the way they're financed because they're very reliable income streams from broadcast rights you can borrow against. JP Morgan would have seen things that way and they wouldn't have necessarily thought about the the social element in Europe, the level of political and fan anger you're going to get. So in that sense, CVC are much closer to the realities of how the sport is perceived in a country like Britain. If one were wise, one might have noted their, their caution. I suppose JP Morgan might not have known the full detail of the discussions. CVC are hardened veterans of sport investing, they really understand it. They understand the social dimensions. JP Morgan are a global bank. They think about the bottom line a bit more maybe and um, they, they would have seen the way these things worked in the US. I think JP Morgan would have been quite convinced by that. So behind the scenes, without anybody knowing, Florentino Perez, plus a couple of others, go round these other clubs and say, do you want in? Here's the proposition. It's ready to run. We've got JP Morgan. Here's the financial possibilities. All this happens behind closed doors and it doesn't leak for a long time. It does leak to a degree. So in October uh, 2020, Sky News gets wind that JP Morgan is funding a new European Super League. And for some reason, the story doesn't really catch light in the mainstream press so much, partly because people have seen Super League plans come and go in the past. It seemed like a bit of a pie in the sky experiment that Real Madrid were pursuing. And getting 12 football owners of the likes of Abramovich, Glazer, Perez, Agnelli, these are not straightforward individuals and these are not pure business decisions. There's emotion involved, there's ego involved, there's risk appetite, there's greed, there's fear, there's all kinds of things. It's much more complicated than the average business deal that might have two or three commercial parties. It's like herding cats. The whole thing is very uncertain right down to the wire. So there are some leaks out there initially. As you say, people don't take too much notice of them, maybe because they've seen these things before. But all the same, the people who are involved must do something to counter these leaks, don't they? Or do they just say nothing? Key Capital, which is an Aflagrari's boutique bank, which is at the heart of the whole thing, they, they use these leaks as opportunities to do surveys of fans because they're trying to convince themselves and JP Morgan that the reaction from the public is going to be okay. They use the cover of the leaks to go to fans with surveys across Europe saying there are reports about this Super League idea in the press. What would you think about it? Those surveys came back showing 60 to 80 percent of fans would come to support Super League, um, which maybe that's a case of um, getting the answers you want based on the questions you ask. The people involved persuaded themselves that there'll be an initial speed bump of reaction. And that once they got past that, <laughs> people would see these spectacular midweek clashes happening the whole time and would, would come to love it. And that was genuinely their belief. So in other words, they really wanted this thing and they managed to persuade themselves that other people would want it too once they'd had a little bit of reaction in the way in which people do. Now, you've had these leaks. 
They've done the surveys. And then all of a sudden, it breaks. Lunchtime on the Sunday of the April weekend, the Times came out with a very detailed report revealing the Super League's structure and the involvement of JP Morgan and the amounts on offer. And all hell broke loose. Gary Neville, the former Man U defender turned pundit, was on air at the time. He delivered an impassioned rant. Make no mistake about it. It's a criminal act against the fans. Simple as that. Denouncing the greed of the big six, and in particular the Glazers and Man United. You never hear from the owners of these clubs. They're imposters. They're nothing to do with football in this country. Stop these clubs having the power base. Enough is enough. Boris Johnson got on Twitter. There was a huge backlash. And before the Super League had even really got themselves together and put out a press release, because the whole thing had only come together the previous night, they were completely caught flat-footed by the reaction and the whole thing blew up. From Liverpool to Tottenham and Manchester, feelings were made absolutely clear. This is nothing to do with the fans or Tuchel or any of the staff because they're only doing their jobs. But it's the upstairs right now. They can fuck off. We're going to look at everything that uh, we can do uh, with the, the football authorities to, to make sure that uh, this doesn't go ahead in the way that it's uh, currently being proposed. I don't think that it is good news for, for fans. I don't think it's good news for, uh, for football in this country. My son and my nephew will be absolutely devastated if we get taken out of the Premier League. The actual fans that go in are the ones that make the clubs what they are today. Yeah, well said, Sean. Sean, thank you so much for calling in this morning. That was Sean, the Arsenal fan. What you or I might think of as an entirely predictable reaction took them completely by surprise. And... Under the weight of that surprise, that coalition just broke, didn't it? It just dissolved. It was a very fragile coalition, much more so than we realised when the news first came out. As an outsider looking in, people were amazed at the apparent myopia of these owners, that they thought this kind of thing could ever fly, that fans or governing bodies would ever go along with it. But if you look back, they'd worked on this for so long in secret, and they'd convinced themselves that this was the future of football, this was the way of saving it. They'd got into this world where they had convinced themselves they were right. And it's an interesting experiment or, or study in, in groupthink, isn't it? The way that a group of people who are very intelligent and powerful and rich, but maybe quite insulated from the everyday reality of politics and, and fan sentiment in, in Europe, convinced themselves this was the right thing to do. They don't care about the normal fans who go every week. It's just greed. There's, it's just nothing about... These owners who care anything about this club. I think a lot of other people thought when observing this, they must have worked this out. I thought they were going to go ahead with it no matter what. Yes, they'd take these demonstrations on the chin. They'd take Boris Johnson on the chin. They'd take Prince William on the chin. Fine, and would say, just you see, in a year's time, you'll love it. But we're absolutely determined. But they didn't. They caved immediately, most of them. A fragile coalition of various quite self-serving individuals who, in the end, would do what's best for themselves rather than the new collective group. I think they were genuinely shocked by the, the vehemence of the reaction and Boris Johnson saying he would drop a legislative bomb on it and he would try and ban clubs involved from making transfers and make visas difficult for foreign players in the UK. When it came down to it, what were they scared of? And I suppose I should ask, were they all equally scared or was it mostly the British clubs? In other words, would Real have persisted if the British clubs had persisted? The British clubs got scared because of the ferocity of the backlash and the political dimension. We're getting unconfirmed reports at this moment that Chelsea are pulling out of the Super League. 
we should note at this point that Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus are still part of the Super League. There's a Super League holding company, which all the clubs still have shares in. But those three European sides are still actively pursuing the Super League's case. While it was leaking, they were applying to a court in Madrid for an injunction against UEFA and FIFA, stopping the governing authorities from taking any sanctions against members of the Super League on the basis that UEFA and FIFA would be acting anti-competitively by stymieing the creation of a new league. They recently had court order that the injunction should be obeyed. Barcelona, Juventus and Real Madrid hope by doing that they will get a ruling that will establish a precedent and then will give other clubs the confidence to come back and um, try it again. The conditions that gave rise to their desire for this Super League still exist. They haven't gone away. And the desire of some of the clubs, the non-British clubs, to persist with it because they haven't got quite the same problem that the British clubs do, that's continuing. Is there any real chance of them setting up without the British clubs? I think it's very hard to believe that you would watch a new Champions League without any premiership sides. I think you'd end up having a few super clubs from Italy and Spain and not much else, at which point it becomes rather um, futile, doesn't it? So I think it's very hard to see how a Super League could function without them. Right. So in other words, the British club's lack of likelihood of ever joining up to something like this, or at least in the foreseeable future, means that actually it is pretty much dead. It's definitely dead in the format that everyone went crazy about in April. Perhaps we're going to see an attempt by Barcelona, Juventus and Real Madrid to use whatever court proceedings they managed to pursue in Europe as a bargaining chip with UEFA to reform the Champions League more fundamentally. I think that might become the vehicle for attempted change. Let's take sentiment out of it. I'm a British football fan. I'm very clear. Stoke on a Wednesday evening, etc. I think is important to my sense of football. But the argument they put forward was that for very, very many fans who don't watch in person, those tens and hundreds of millions of TV viewers around the world my sentiment's not their sentiment, and they're not going to pay for that. They want to pay for the big sides, the really glamour sides, play each other. You look over the next 10, 20 years, millennial and Gen Z attention spans are fragmenting. People have limited time and attention to spend 90 minutes watching even a really good football game, let alone the Wednesday domestic clash against Stoke. They want to capture more fans in the Americas, South America, more fans in Asia, to capture younger fans around the world regularly, you need to genetically engineer more Titanic clashes. You need more Real Madrid-Liverpool and fewer Everton-Stoke. So if that's what they think the future is, that's either an objective truth or it's not. So is possible that a legacy fan like me is actually a dinosaur? I think there's a generation of fan who is committed enough. They will follow their team doggedly around, endure the sort of rainy nil-nil game on a Wednesday. Directionally, they are right, the people who organise the Super League. Football probably has hit its peak commercially in terms of the current format. I don't think broadcast rights are ever going to be as strong as they were in the mid-noughties again. Um, but it's how you go about addressing that. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, business editor for The Sunday Times, Oliver Shah. You can read more of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Oliver Adamson, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Vulcan Kiseltug. 
And look, if you have a story you think we should be covering, perhaps an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon.